Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean's developer cloud makes it simple to launch in the cloud and scale up as you grow. They have an intuitive control panel, predictable pricing, team accounts, worldwide availability with a 99.99 uptime SLA and 24-7, 365 world-class support to back that up. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, scale, store, secure, and monitor your cloud environments. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. Go time. Welcome to Go Time. On this episode, Thorsten Ball returns, this time to talk with the crew about Power Tools for Go. If this is your first listen, be sure to subscribe at changelog.com slash go time or wherever you get your podcasts. We have episodes in the pipeline with special guests Dave Cheney and Brian Lyles. Trust me, you want to go to there. Hey, we'd love to hear your unpopular opinions. Tweet them to us at GoTimeFM and we may read and respond in a future episode. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to this episode of Go Time. I'm Johnny Borsico, along with Mr. John Calhoun. We are joined by special guest Thorsten Ball. If you've been in the Go community for a while, his name should sound familiar. He is the author of two very educational books on writing interpreters and compilers in Go. How are you, Mr. Ball? Hello, I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm doing much better now because we're going to be talking about ooh, tools, power tools. Before we get into that... Mr. Calhoun, how are you? I'm doing well. Excited to get into this one because there's a lot of interesting things here. Oh, yes, indeed. So <laughs> one thing we will not do, well, I'm hoping we won't do, is uh, in talking about tools. And to be specific, we're talking about sort of a not just tools built and go, although that's certainly part of it, and not just tools unique or specialized for go development, but really all the things all the, the, that sort of make up your developer workflow, right? So it, you know, it could be editors, it could be containerization that you use locally, it could be how you do live reloading and testing, it could be your shell, all the tools that we as developers use to build and ship software. But Going back to my original point, we will try very hard not to start any wars over things like editors and whatnot, because everybody <laughs> has their favorites. Um, and that goes, you know, it's the same thing for, for every tool on this list here. Maybe you have something that, that you really, really like and you think it's best thing since sliced bread. And that's OK, too. Right. We're here to talk about a wide range of things and then hopefully sort of title back to our sort of a, a daily go development. So. Let us start. Well, where, where do you start? This is such a broad field. You know, we can start with editors, but I really want us to keep it sort of, you know, <laughs> not go too down, too deep in the weeds a little bit. Personally, I use a combination of uh, VS Code and Vim, depending on what I'm doing, the environment I'm in. Either one of these tools works for me. So, Thorson, what do you think? I would say the number one tool that I need that I would, you know, need on any computer that I work with would be a, a terminal, a shell. Mm -hmm. 
I often think about this question because it's an interview question where I work at Sourcegraph. <laughs> so I get to ask it a bunch of times and discuss it a lot. And I think my answer would be, you know, a Unix environment, the shell, where you can boot up a bunch of tools. You know, I always, I use Vim. So I start up Vim a bunch of times. I put it in a background with control C. I run uh, rip grab. Um, everything is in a Tmux session. I spawn a ton of different shells, close them, spawn new ones, close them. And for me, when I tried to switch to VS Code, for example, this was the thing that I noticed the most. Like, it's not, you know, specific syntax highlighting or theme or whatever. It is the ability to quickly run stuff in a shell and close the shell. So that's my number one mm-hmm. must-have tool. Mm-hmm. I think everybody's, it's interesting how everybody's very unique there. Like I see people who use VS Code and use the terminal built in. <laughs> mm. I can't do that. I'm just like, I'm sorry. I want that terminal to go away and leave me alone because it's just not what I'm using. Because I just have like global hotkeys that bring up a terminal and that's how I get back and forth between the two. But I use VS mm. Code more than probably anything else. You have a global hotkey and it brings up this, you know, the iTerm yeah, it brings up thing I-term. at the top. Yep. And then what do you type in? Whatever I need to do, depending. But how do you get the output, for example, back into your editor or something? I usually, like, what output do you want me to have back in the editor, I guess? (laughs) Yeah. It kind of depends. Part of this is probably depending on what you're working on, too. Like, if I'm working on a web server or something, there are a lot of ways you can actually plug in the two so that, like, you can actually hold in command and click on, like, a line number, uh, Mm -hmm. like a source file with a line number, and it'll open that up in VS Code. Like, there are ways you can connect those things that they'll often work. Yeah. Um, So you can actually jump back and forth and do things like that. The other option is just a sort of no shortcut. So like if you know it's this file and this line number, you go back to VS Code and and do whatever you need to do to get there. But I do agree with you fully that like a Unix environment is something that is really hard to not have in some capacity. Because this Mm. is a question I get asked by all my friends that aren't developers. They always ask like, why don't you just run a Windows machine? Why do you need this Mac or Linux or whatever it is? And it's so hard to explain until you go try to do some sort of development in Windows. And like when you want to do those command line tools or anything like that, it's like I have to learn an entire new workflow compared to yeah. like what I'm used to and what everybody else seems to be doing. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain, right? To be fair, the Windows development story from the lens of folks who are used to using, you know, like a Mac OS or something or even sort of pure uh, Linux environment. The story there on the Windows environment, I hear, right, I'm not a Windows user, nothing against Windows, I'm just not a Windows user, um, but I hear that story has, has gotten much better. I hear folks sort of talk sort of how happy, you know, they, I hear them say how happy they are with the WSL, the Windows subsystem, I believe it's called, yeah. uh, for Linux, and it provides sort of that, you can't quite tell that you're not in the Linux environment. From what I can tell, it's, a, it's pretty much very similar, if not you know, close to being the same thing. So I hear that story has sort of evolved a little bit. So every now and then I'll sort of you know, peek at say, hey, what are the, uh, you know, the folks on the, on the Windows side? What, what are they kind of playing around with uh, these days? But to me, the issue I've always had with Windows environments uh, for tooling has really partly been driven by sort of the development community itself. Right. So, you know, a, a long time ago when I first started doing uh, sort of coding and whatnot, all the tools 
that I needed to use were being built, you know, for, you know, uh, Linux or Mac uh, machines. So that sort of drove me towards sort of adopting these tools because that's where all the best tooling, at least, you know, for you doing command line, you know, kind of work, which I really enjoy doing. That's where really all the best sort of tools were being built, at least first, right? And, it, it, and it, over time, they were kind of being ported. And, you know, with the Windows environment, it always felt like you had to use some sort of a graphical user interface to use these tools. And like the moment I got a taste of, of the CLI, I was like, okay, I want to do everything in the command line, right? And, and Windows just back then just was not. And I'm talking like, you know, Windows 98, Windows 2000. To this day, Windows 2000, 2000 it still remains sort of my personal favorite because that was the last one I used before I, before I jumped to, to using a Mac. Uh, actually, I, w- I went through Ubuntu first. But yeah, it feels like, and I'm sure some folks that are hearing this later are going to sort of, you know, corroborate that. And some folks in the channel will sort of jump in as well. Like the, the Windows story, you know, for tooling and development has gotten much better over the years. Yeah. Like when you look at things like Docker 2 that are coming out, they've all sort of helped push that. Because like these days, anytime somebody asks, even on like a, a Mac OS, there are easy ways to install things like Postgres. But if you are familiar with Docker, there are much easier ways to just spin something up that's running Docker than installing it. So, you know, knowing that that'll work on any operating system, if you understand Docker is, is really helpful. And I think that also really helps you know, support that argument you're making where all these operating systems are kind of getting close to parity. Mm. I wonder whether Go itself has had some impact there. As in, mm. cross-compilation is really easy to do. And, you know, I released a new CLI today or a new version of our CLI today. And there's a Windows build included. And I never thought about it. Mm. It's just done automatically, right? And if I compare this, for example, to... Uh, Ruby, which I worked in for a long, long time, um, this was never really supported. And since it's not a compiled language, you always have to bring the interpreter. To, you know, you basically need to wait for the interpreter to build in all of these features. It's a slightly different thing, and I wonder whether cross compilation in recent years has, you know, maybe allowed more people to use, you know, Dev tools on on Windows. I don't know, just a. Uh, Thought. I definitely think that's true. I remember the first time I tried to learn Rails, I didn't know a Unix environment that well. I was still relatively young, and mm. I tried it on a Windows machine and basically gave up after a while. I was like, this is not working on this machine. I need to get a Linux installed before I can even mess with this. And I gave it up for at least a couple months until I like came back to it, and I actually had a Linux machine to do it at that point. So yeah. I know for some things... You know, having that ability to compile in different places or different platforms, and that definitely helps. Mm. It's funny, right? We said we don't start with the editor's flame wars, but now we ended up talking about <laughs> operating systems. <laughs> Not a flame war, though. It's more of a... It, it's nice to see that it's like they're all coming around and you can do everything. Right. It's one of the two hot topics of the internet 2005 or something. <laughs> like Either yeah. editors or operating systems. Or operating systems. Well, you did touch on sort of uh, the containerization stuff, um, and we're talking about Docker. I was like saying, I was like thinking in my head. Well, I remember there was a period when I used Vagrant a ton. Right? Vagrant was like, you know, in my mind, the original tool that sort of allowed me to have separate environments. And and I had, you know, back when I worked at agency, I had different environments for different customers. Right? I could, you know, boot up yeah. an environment and have everything that particular, you know, customer 
you know, the tools that, you know, the products and services that we were working on for them, I could sort of, you know, separate these things, right? Um, and easily sort of spin them up on an environment for, to work on that particular project or that particular project. So for me, before that was Docker, that was Vagrant, right? And I still look back fondly on that project. Uh, but yeah, these days, you know, you can really, like with containerization, you can kind of, any sort of <laughs> environment you want, you can kind of, you know, put together, combine them and remix them however you need it. It's a really, it's a, it's a brand new world we've been living in. Well, how old is Docker now? What, six, seven years old? I can't remember, but yeah. Yeah, seven. Some of us are are slow to adopt fully. <laughs> you were the laggards on the hype curve? <laughs> I, I've lagged a little bit with some of it. I mean, mostly because a lot of my projects are just me, so I don't experience the same problems that, you know, teams experience. But I have been yeah. on teams where I worked on one Rails project where we one of the libraries we required like got pulled from a package manager or like wherever it was, I think it was on brew or something, but it got pulled. So every mm. new person who came to the team would go to get set up and it wouldn't work because that wouldn't be there. And the newer version like would break something. So like when you experience that, that you're like, okay, I understand why this exists and I definitely want it. But by the time Docker came around, you know, that wasn't really the, I was no longer on that project. So it didn't matter as much. And yeah. sometimes you don't learn and you're like, eh, I'll wait till I need it. And then when you need it, you're smacking your head off the wall. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to go off on a rant here, but what you said, as in, I never experienced the problem, so I didn't get it, what it's for. I think this happens so many times that people just don't add the context of the thing that they're describing. Like, you know, five years ago, people were saying, oh, Docker is the cure for everything, and you, you, you got to use containers. And, you know, th this was one side of the debate, and the other side was like, I don't get it. What's so hard about installing just this and that on, on, you know, on your images or something. And what they're missing is person A is working for 15 different clients and in 15 different environments, person B has a small, highly skilled team of developers that build their own, you know, AWS images or something that they, you know, upload every day. And they have a build process for it. So it's guaranteed you have the same stuff on every machine. And all of this is lost when they talk about the same thing <laughs> and they just talk past each other. And that happens like all the time in programming where people say, this is the best thing of all time. And it's, it's a person working for a 5,000 developer company talking to another person working in a little agency with three developers. <laughs> and, you know, they go, you should use this. The other person goes to their boss and says, somebody on the internet said we should use this. <laughs> and, you know, if we could just put them in the same room or they would have to carry a name tag with them. Like I work for company X with so many employees and we do this and that. That would clear up so much stuff. You need contacts. When you want to bring something in, you don't want to just say, oh, so-and-so uses this thing, so yeah. it must mean it's good, right? The fact that some company or somebody you hear of on the internet uses a particular thing, that doesn't mean it's necessarily good for you. They have their reasons for choosing it, which kind of, <laughs> there's this meme out there, right, of, of folks using Kubernetes to run like blogs or something. It's like having a giant, you know, 18-wheeler <laughs> just carrying yeah. just a small little package on, on the back, right, on the, on the truck bed. So it's like, again, using the right tools for the job, which is, I think we've touched on this in the show as well, previous shows as well, is that there's so much of sort of the 
that of it, you see other, you know, community members um, doing something, maybe somebody you respect or you admire, whatever it is, you see them using a particular tool or a particular technology. And, you know, like in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, I should be more objective with my selection criteria. <laughs> but like, but the, so-and-so is using it, right? So you start using it too because of that, right? There's this peer yeah. pressure that we don't, we don't want to acknowledge. That's always in the back of my minds. And sometimes it acts on our decision making without us even realizing it. Yeah, I openly admit that I still like using the terminal because I thought it was cool when I was 14 years old. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's probably the main reason, right? I think that's yeah. also why, like, you get people who like Vim or anything like that, and they stick with it once they've learned it because it's productive for them. And mm. like, even like Johnny and I, like, if I'm using VS Code, it's not that I think it's better than Vim. It's that for me particularly, it's more productive because mm. I don't have to learn something new. Speaking of that stuff and things where people jump around. Let's talk about some tools that you guys use for like databases and that sort of thing. I say, speaking of that, because you see people jump from one database to the next hot one whenever MongoDB came out. I remember every tutorial and everything on the internet was MongoDB, you know, the NoSQL phase and all of those phases. But I'm curious, what are you guys using? What do you, you know, when you're, when you're building a new project or doing something like that, what sort of tools do you find helpful in that front? Postgres, ask the database. Or I don't know how it's pronounced, actually. I got confused a couple of days ago. Somebody wrote somewhere, it's PostgreSQL or something. I think it's usually referred to as Postgres, but it is like... Yeah, Postgres. SQL is in the end of the name, yeah, I believe. The one but. with the elephant. So, <laughs> yeah, that that's the database of choice for me for at least the last six to eight years. And on Mac, I use Postgres.app which is this neat mm-hmm. Mac app in the in the status bar at the top where I can spin up a bunch of different Postgres versions, like 9.6, whatever, 11.12, and yeah, control them. And then on the command line, I have the psql, the, the command line client for Postgres, which can be configured if people don't notice, you know, reads in a dot file. So you can set a different prompt, you can turn on auto-completion, you can turn on different pagers, which, you know, change the way databases or query output is printed. So that's pretty neat and you can customize it. And that's basically it for database needs on my side. So we're not at the unpopular opinion segment yet, but I'm not sure if, if what I'm about to say is unpopular or not, but unless I have a requirement to have some sort of a distributed system where I need my data highly available and, you know, I need the different instances of my services or backends to be, you know, accessing the same data. I'm okay with shipping a sort of single purpose, like one, basically one program and shipping a fly file or, you know, maybe using Bolt DB or, or Badger or something like that to have basically my application use just a local file basically to, to you know, serialize data and read data back out of you'd be you'd be amazed how many of at least of your own personal but also some production um, sort of uh, applications that don't need sort of a distributed data store right you, you'll be amazed how far these things can take you right you don't always need you know like a giant server uh, you know to handle your storage you don't always need that sometimes i think we just default to that sort of you know by, out of a habit but you don't always need that right and it can actually simplify your your deployment story right if you just say you know what this thing just needs to just read some file locally and you know it'll serialize information back down when it needs it and then that's it you move on so that's really interesting do you have 
one process usually that reads in a file on on when it boots up and reads it in memory yeah during start you know typically you know i have my uh, when i'm initializing my applications i do sort of flag based and environment based sort of uh configuration so i read in those flags and read in environment variables and you know this is where the location of the file and basically during initialization i just read in things and if i need to deserialize whatever it is i do it then and then usually for the life cycle of the application uh, basically there's just one there's just one thing sort of in charge of writing you know back to back mm -hmm. to storage and then yeah during uh you know if the application were to be shut down it can it'll handle signals gracefully you know, basically, it'll just basically uh, clean up after itself, make sure the file is sort of gets written to and, and closed properly. And I don't know. I've, I've <laughs> Can you give an example of which kind of data you write into the file? Like, is it line based record? Like, I can give one example. Um, so when I first launched Gopher Sizes, which was just like a free coding course type thing, I did my like user system was very, very basic. You basically signed up, I would email you a any like just a URL that would log you in. And that URL would basically stay the same forever for each person, but each person had like a unique URL to log in. And that entire system was built with a uh, Bolt DB backing it. So like while I did have to write users, it was such a rare occurrence that it didn't matter that it was Bolt DB because 99% of the time I was just reading data and, you know, reading when a user logged in or reading if they're trying to access different course materials, things like that. So it worked really well. And, you know, I wasn't hitting some millions of users scale. It was... I think the highest that setup ever went to was like 25 or 30,000 users, but it was never concurrently. It was, you know, spread out. And because the way the app worked, people refresh a page like once every 10 minutes when they're done with the video. It's not like, a, you know, where they're mm -hmm. hitting multiple pages. So it just worked really well for that. And it made deployments and everything like that really easy. Even backing up the system was as simple as copying a Bolt DB file and being like, okay, I've got a backup of my database now. Mm -hmm. One of the like a little pet project that I'm working on right now is sort of writing a, um, a port scanner, right? Um, and basically just be, being able to sort of send a ship a binary and say, hey, you write the results of your port scans um, to this Bolt DB database. And then, uh, you know, at some point I synchronize, I send that to an S3 bucket. You know, I just, you know, package it up as an object, store that. And, you know, I get the guarantee that, you know, S3 is not going to sort of uh, um, go down on me. At least it's more reliable than, than anything I can build. And yeah, it's just, I mean, and even if I have, you know, a highly concurrent program, right, I sort of have a fan out, fan in approach and all my data gets written, you know, safely. And, and I don't know, it just, it works. Would you say you don't need querying then or indexes or something? It's just a, a data dump in a sense? Well, you can have more sophisticated stuff. I can think of a uh, Blevy, for example. You know, it's like a, a Go-based uh, indexer. So if you need searching mm -hmm. capabilities, you can actually absolutely do that, right? And Blevy itself happens to support multiple storage backends, right? And BoltDB happens to be one of them, right? I'm sure there's a ton more. So chances are, if your use case, again, is, is not one where you require sort of a um, highly available, um, sort of a distributed sort of a, a um, system, then, you know, storing on your local file system, it's, it's fine. It's okay. I mean, I would say this breaks down as soon as you have multiple processes, even on the same machine, right? Because then you would have concurrent writes or reads to the same file. You need to share them between right. different processes. So Yeah, I mean, even Bolt DB, you can't have two open connections to it at once. So, like, it doesn't let you do that. So, yeah. you have to, like, know from the get-go that you're either designing a system around that. So, like, one process loads up everything mm -hmm. or... Yeah. You have to sort of consider the fact that like if you get to that point you need to change you know what you're doing but i do yeah. agree with johnny that there are a lot of cases where people jump to these i mean it's the same when you see people jumping to the no sequel solutions when they really didn't need it 
It's like consider your solutions and what you expect that application to do or your possibilities and what you expect the application to do. And if that works fine for your use case, then go for it. I have to say, I'm super fascinated. This is to me like somebody saying, yeah, my car doesn't have an engine. I just have a little, <laughs> hole, a little hole at the bottom. I stick my feet out and just walk. On, just, I mean, like I can know. tell you, I've, I've actually seen things in production with SQLite powering them. Yep. Yeah, I mean, Hacker News is, is file best as far as I know, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it comes down to what exactly do you do with the data? Because... Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Hacker News, for example, you have posts, comments, whatever. It's it's a hierarchy. It's a pretty simple hierarchy. You can see how you can map that onto a file system. Mm-hmm. Every post is a folder. Every comment is a file or whatever, right? Then you can use the file system. And file system nowadays are incredibly optimized and fast. We have SSDs. As soon as you can query the data you want without having to use an index, which is one of the big benefits of a database, then I guess you're fine. But as soon as you need like different queries and you need to group data and you want it to be performant without loading it into memory, you know, I guess then you need a database. Yeah, if your needs, right, extend to wanting to actually slice and dice the data, right, then I'd say, hey, like get the data out into some format you can actually work with. If you need to do SQL queries and that thing, hey, dump it out, you know, have to have some sort of transformer that takes, you know, the serialized format that's in the file and, and basically converts it into records in a database. Or if you want to, you know, to use some NoSQL, whatever the latest and greatest thing is that everybody's jumping onto, you want to do that and write a transformer for that too, right? So you can transform the data into whatever format is optimal for your use case, for what you're trying to get done. Which brings me to another favorite tool of mine, JQ. Hmm. Yep. You could basically write a database with this, right? <laughs> <laughs> you could dump your data in a JSON file, and JQ is this little command line utility that allows you to query data in a JSON file or in a you know JSON input stream, whatever. And mm-hmm. you can map over every entry, say, give me this, uh, this field, give me that field, create a string out of these two fields, whatever. It, I use this 10 times every day. <laughs> I assume you're working with a lot of APIs or something like that that are giving you JSON data then? Yeah. Okay. Or, you know, just simple, for example, at Sourcegraph, our configuration system is JSON. So you have like an editor where you can put in JSON. So yeah, there is a lot of JSON involved. And I actually have, <laughs> this sounds, it's really trivial, but I have a mapping in Vim that pipes the JSON that I just selected to JQ. So it formats it. And then you can pipe out and query it with with JQ too. So cool. I get a lot of mileage out of out of having JQ install. See, that type of stuff is interesting to me because I found that it really depends on what your current project is. Like JQ is one of those tools that I've I've used in the past, and when I used it, I used it a good bit. But then when I wasn't using it, I found that I like would have a new system and wouldn't install it for months because I didn't realize I needed it. Um, which yeah. is, and then you go to use it and be like, why isn't this installed right now? Um, you know, it would just be like a confusing thing. Um, and some others that stuck out to me like that were things like Postman and like Paw yeah. and a couple other tools that are like, I think Ngrok was one that does. So Postman and Paw, for anybody unfamiliar, uh, we'll try to put them in the show notes, are tools that are kind of used to make like API queries into sort of, they're, they're basically really good tools for testing and, and asserting different things with APIs. And then Ngrok was a tool that I've used that does like a, it's like a tunnel, is that what it? Tunneling, yeah. Basically, it allows you to expose some local host process to the web. 
And one of the processes I used that a lot for when I did web development stuff was anytime you'd need webhooks and you want to test them locally, right. you'd want a tool like that where you could spin up your local environment, expose it to the web, get a webhook and actually use it. Because otherwise it was like a nightmare to say, does my code work? And the last thing you want to do is ah, ship it to production. It'll work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Ngrok is one of these tools you recommend it to somebody and if they're working with webhooks, for example, <laughs> and they always say, this is amazing. I just boot it up. It works. I get the, like the little URL. This is my web app now exposed to the internet securely, blah, blah, blah. How could I live without this? And then you don't have to work with webhooks anymore. And suddenly you never use it again. It's one of these tools. As soon as you need it, it fits the use case perfectly. <laughs> Hi there, this is John Calhoun, one of your GoTime panelists. When I'm not working on GoTime, I create programming courses that help developers level up their Go skills. And one of my more recent courses, Algorithms with Go, is live, and I wanted to invite you to check it out. So it's completely free, and in it we explore how algorithms and data structures work, as well as how to actually implement them in Go code. So if you've ever had an interest in learning about algorithms or data structures, or if you felt like you understand them conceptually but just couldn't nail down that coding part, this course is going to be great for you. We actually dive into coding everything, we work on practice problems, and it's a lot of fun. You can sign up completely free at algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. Uh, again, that's algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. And don't forget that last slash gotime bit. It helps me keep track of how you found out about the course so that gotime gets credit for referring you. Thanks for listening. Another one that I've noticed along those lines, so there's the new GitHub CLI tool that came out. Mm -hmm. And when it came out, it reminded me of the hub tool, which I found like, again, one of those ones where like when I was creating a lot of new repos and doing certain things like that with the team, I found myself using that tool more often. And then later, I, I don't know why I just stopped using it as much. And I don't know if it was a, I wasn't interacting with a large team as much. So I didn't really have as much of like a, an issue process and you know, all the other stuff. I could just sort of just use Git and, you know, figure out things that way. I'm curious if there's any others along that line. Like when you guys are working with, let's say, source control, what tools do you find useful to you know, source control? And I guess maybe project management type stuff with your team. What tools are you finding useful on that front? I have this. I don't even know how to describe it. Like every time I use, like I've used Hub definitely in the past. And every time I use one of those tools, which is Almost like really, if you think about them, they're just like a, some sort of abstraction or some sort of a, a wrapper, you know, around tools you already have locally. I always feel like somehow I'm cheating. Like I always feel like I, you should know the actual wizardry and flags and things and things that Git the Git command lets you do. Or like I always feel like I somehow I'm I'm not sort of giving the appropriate level of sort of attention or that I should or something when I use these tools. And a lot of times I've stopped using these tools because I'm like, oh, you, you should know how to do this, like with the actual tool and not get a wrapper or some sort of a, you know, thing around it or something like it's, it's a weird thing, but I do experience that sort of feeling. I use hub a lot, or at least the, the, the new GitHub CLI has the same feature. I use it to list issues, basically to talk to the GitHub API. I don't use it to 
create PRs or switch branches or whatever. I do all my Git locally with Git itself on the command line. I have a bunch of helpers configured to have like nice log output, uh, you know, few aliases, you know, for faster Git checkout, create feature branch, whatever, all of that stuff. And that's basically it. I never used one of the graphical Git clients. I'm weirdly proud of it, even though I know I probably should have used one of them when doing an interactive rebase or whatever, or you, you know, you've ran into some weird conflict when merging one branch into the other and rebasing it on mass or something. But yeah, I do like it on the command line. And I found that, you know, I'm speaking from the experience of sitting next to a colleague who used Git Tower, I think it's called, um, the, the graphical client for Git. And he often had, you know, problems when he tried to rebase or he pushed to a branch or something and stuff broke. And it was a combination of Git Tower in the back automatically fetching new things, but him assuming, oh, it's safe to rebase because I haven't fetched the new stuff. Um, and then, you know, doing a manual rebase on the command line, but, you know, the Git, uh, the, the graphical client getting in between him and, and the Git history and something and, and breaking stuff. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm right in what I'm doing. <laughs> There's some, I think, advantage to knowing whether, you know, the, the abstraction layers in a sense, as mm -hmm. in, you know, if you do, I don't know, I've, I haven't used it, so I can't really speak from experience, but I can imagine that if you do stuff in like a graphical Git UI client that abstracts a lot of stuff away, it is as easy to shoot yourself into the foot as with Git on the command line, because you don't actually know what's happening in the background. And for some use cases, you might need to know. I view it as um, similar to like people who use a framework or like an ORM when they don't know SQL, for example. Mm. It's one of those cases where it's great to get you started and get you familiar and get you some sort of framework to learn from. But you shouldn't stop at that point. You should, you know, you should look at other ways to use it and maybe sort of get slightly familiar with the command line so that you really understand what it's doing behind the scenes. And then I think from that point on, you can sort of branch out and actually be a little bit more, you know, sophisticated with what you're doing. No, when you when you said that, that immediately um, sort of raised a flag in my mind. And basically, I'd say <laughs> I'm having flashbacks to the days where. I used to use uh, um, WYSIWYG tools to build websites, right? Like, uh, you know, if, if you've ever used like Hot Metal Pro or <laughs> like Dreamweaver or all these things, you front know, front page, front page. Oh my gosh, <laughs> front page. These tools would sort of, you know, like they presented sort of this layer between you and the actual code and the actual yeah. sort of markup and scripts that, that got written. And at some point I was like, okay, well, if my objective is to get something done as quickly as possible, right? The graphical user interface is going to help me there. 99% of the time, it will do the right thing. But in that 1% where it, it fails, I'm going to have no idea how to actually fix it. And I'm more likely to just start over, you know, at some point and then to try and get it right than I am to sort of get under the hood and figure it out, right? But that that is with the objective of getting something done as quickly as possible. Whatever it is that I'm trying to get done is not an area where I desire to develop mastery, or expertise in okay so if that area is something i really want to understand and master then i will go through the pain of actually 
getting under the hood and doing sort of a, doing the reading, reading the docs, reading the manuals, basically getting to the esoteric knowledge that allows me to become a master in that thing. But again, we have 24 hours in a day and I don't know about you, but there's only so much I can spend time mastering. Right. So I have to sort of be deliberate about which thing am I willing to spend you know, a good deal of time you know, mastering. And these days, that field has narrowed for me quite a bit. So if it means using a graphical user interface to get something done that I don't care to master or has no real impact on, on my livelihood as a professional, then I don't mind using the, the, the GUI. I'm fine clicking around on an interface somewhere and getting things done so I can get back to the things I actually care about. That's sort of the, the lens I bring to it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely makes sense, especially because I guess when I view the GUI stuff, I, I've never used it for an extended period, but it is something where I've suggested people, until you understand what Git is useful for, it's sometimes nice to look at it in this graphical you know view and just sort of get a feel for, okay, what is a PR? What are these changes? And then mm -hmm. from there, you can go back and sort of start looking at the command line and looking at how things are different. For example, I don't know how you guys typically do your PRs, but one of the things that I've been really adamant about, I guess, is that I like one commit to sort of be one complete change, like one idea. So where some people will do a PR that's actually composed of like 10 commits, I will actually, in my own personal history, I will, you know, squash that all together into one big commit. And there are some problems with that, depending on what review tools you use and things like that. But it is very helpful in some situations, like if you've ever been on a team where you're trying to figure out where was this bug introduced or you know, when was this feature implemented or something, sometimes having that every commit is one complete thing is really, really helpful. So I think that's something it'd be hard to explain to somebody, like, you know, the differences and the nuances, unless they have a, a broad overview of sort of how Git works. And sometimes the graphical stuff can be useful to get that across. But then, like you said, if you really want to get that mastery for it, you're unlikely to get that in a graphical user interface. First of all, uh, I have to add that I was really, really anal about my Git history like perfectly written commit messages, <laughs> right? They're fantastic commit messages. I put so much love into them. And now at work, we do squash and merge of pull requests. Mm -hmm. So they're all gone, right? Like, like tears <laughs> in the rain. So now I just don't care anymore. It's like fix, I don't care. They gotta just put stuff up. It's gotta get squashed anyway. Fix stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stuff, fix. Let's try again. <laughs> WTF. <laughs> but I wanted to say is I think there's another dimension to it besides mastery. And that is these tools, you know, we can say graphical tools, but what I mean is IDEs or integrated environments, you know, mm -hmm. front page is what, what triggered this thought. These tools are great as long as you stay in them. Mm -hmm. But as soon as you have to break out of them, you're lost because they get their value from being integrated. And, you know, just an example that I thought of, because uh, we, we talked, you know, you mentioned Dreamweaver. Uh, I used front page back then. So you would, you know, code up your web page in front page, clicking all of the stuff together and moving it around, layouting it. And then you, you search on what's it called? Alta Vista back then, Google, whatever. <laughs> you search for DHTML mouse cursors that uh -huh. follow your mouse or something. I don't know. And then the tutorial says, in your HTML, add this to your head and add this to your body. And then in front page, you, you try to figure out how, how do I get to the HTML? And you get to the HTML and then it turns out, no, the head looks totally different here than it looks in the tutorial. It's not mm -hmm. even close. 
<laughs> and this is, I think, the same when you talk about IDEs, for example, where you have a nice interface to configure your build or your test or whatever, like, you know, which flags, blah, blah, blah. As soon as you want to run another tool in this, you know, process, you're lost because now you have to go around the tool and try to inject your own thing into it. Whereas if you started with, you know, combining your tools, you might have, you know, an easier time. But mm -hmm. that's just, you know, really generic thought on... <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe it's, it's, it's about, you know, using tools from the bottom up and combining them or, you know, just starting from the top down and just replacing what you don't need. I think some of it comes from figuring out which of those tools are the ones you need to replace too, though, because like Johnny said, we don't have enough time to use everything. And even when it comes to tooling, one of the things I'm very, very guilty of, and I'm curious if you two are as well, is I will install all these different things and be like, oh, this is going to help me be so productive and like I'll set up keyboard shortcuts and all these things. And a month later, I'll forgotten 95% of them. And like that 5% that I retained is like, okay, cool. That's really helpful. But I'm still just like, why did I spend all that time setting all these other things up when I just don't use them often enough for that to stick in my head? Or, you know, it just whatever problem I thought it was going to solve wasn't a problem that was big enough to justify a tool. I have a sort of a, a guilty, I have a guilty conscience with some of the tools that I use because like... I found that sometimes I use the hunt for new tools to do things perhaps I already know how to do one way, you know, albeit the quote unquote long way or, or something. I'll go on a hunt for tools, right, that help speed things up. And when I sit back and I reflect, I'm like, why did I spend two hours of my time, two hours that I could have spent, I know I could have spent somewhere else on something more productive. Why did I spend this time? experimenting with these other things with these other tools that would shave maybe you know five seconds on something that i that I, whatever i'm doing now and i figured out that i use that as a form of procrastination to not do the actual work yeah you know that sounds bad but i would also add that <laughs> it's fun right like if if you can shave off a couple of seconds and if you enjoy it you know that is good because it gets you to do more work in the end or do more of the things that you want to do as in you know you have a guitar hanging there in the background i also play guitar and if you talk to people who play guitar for a long time they start talking about equipment and it's the same thing like they go out and they buy they chase the stream of this next amplifier is going to give me that sweet sound and then I'm going to finally mm -hmm. sound like whoever <laughs> that next you know pickup on the guitar is going to give me that and blah blah blah. One thing you know I recognize this as long as it gives you fun or joy while you practice or play or you know do your work it's good because it gets you to do the thing more often. I've also found when you're looking at those tools, it's so hard to decide which ones you're actually going to use and which ones are going to be the 95% you don't ever touch. Like mm -hmm. there have been a couple tools where I've set them up or want to use them and thought, eh, I might use this. We'll see. And like, that's the only one I ended up using out of everything I installed that day or that week or, you know, whatever the time frame was. And I'm just like, how was that the one that I'm using all the time? And yeah. you wouldn't expect it to do much. Like one silly example is I, I went in one point and set up a script just to make sure when I run go test that it has colors. And I think what I did was anything with like a <laughs> file and a line number is yellow. Anything that's like a fail is red and anything that's a pass is green. And it's just like a silly little bash script. 
nothing crazy. And when I did it, I'm like, ah, this will just be nice to have. Like, no big deal. And, like, now I find that having those colors makes it much easier to read test to the point that when I run Go test without it, I'm like, oh, man, I got to get that. Like, I got to change whatever's running the test to run it with colors. And it's it's silly, but at the same time, that's just something I've trained my brain to, like, sort of look very quickly and find, okay, where's the actual line number mm. in the test? Mm. I think tools should come with, or you should be able to install them with an expiration date. So <laughs> let's install this. And if I don't use it in the next 30 days, at least five times, you remove it. That would be cool. I honestly feel like project management tools need that for anything you put in the task list. It's <laughs> yeah. like, I've been in so many teams where you put everything in the backlog and then like, there's things that are like six years old in there. And you're like, we're mm. not going to do this. If we haven't done yeah. it in six years, it's not happening. Right. Just put a, put a TTL. Some person will say, but we might get to do this. Let's just keep right. it in there. Let's not delete it. Someday. Someday. Yeah. Every task and every Jira instance out there in the world or Trello boards or whatever the cool kids are using these days, everything needs a TTL. After a while, it just gets, you know, just ejected. Even if it popped yeah. you a little reminder that said, this is about to expire. Is it something you actually need to do? Like something mm -hmm. to make you consciously say like, yes, we're going to do it or... No, we're really not going to do that. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it should be the other way around. It should delete it and say, I deleted this. If you really want to bring <laughs> it back, send me an email. But, you know, actually, I think Trello, they started, if you had a Trello card in like a Trello board and you didn't move it for a couple of days, it started to show cracks or something. It oh, aged. Uh, some visibly. sort of visual, yeah, some sort of yeah. visual cue. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe you don't really care about this thing you think you care about. Yeah. 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 See, that sort of tooling is hard to figure out because I think for some people, the tool, it, it's not about actually having the task in your task management system. It's about getting it out of your brain and somewhere else. And right. the only time you can get it out of your brain is to write it down or put it down somewhere. Cause I know I'm guilty of this. And I will write things down that I know the chances of me doing this in the next two years are virtually zero. But if I don't write it down, I'm going to think about it randomly for the next two weeks. And I don't want to do that. So it's almost like you need some way of handling that, you know, whether it's that aging process or something, but it's hard to find tools that sort of take that into account, I think. If you like this show and you aren't listening to The Changelog, hey, let's fix that bug. The Changelog is our flagship show and we've been doing it for over a decade. Adam and I seek out and interview the people who are pushing the world forward with software. We dive deep into the hacks, the innovations, and the leadership required to do what these amazing people do. One recent example is our conversation with Anders Damsgaard, a climate scientist from Denmark who gave us a peek inside his work and how he scratched a common itch he has when gathering academic research from around the web. Here's a dorky moment from that episode. Are you trying to be right or are you trying to solve the world's problems? Exactly. <laughs> like if you're a scientist trying to be right, well then your right may not actually be the right. Yeah, exactly. There's another saying, all models are wrong, but some are useful. Mm, okay. I like that one. Then there's another saying, all models are wrong except for mine. Mine's yeah. correct. <laughs> good, good one, Jared. We had a lot of fun with Anders. He's a fascinating guy. Continue listening at changelog.com slash podcast slash 378 or search for The Changelog on your favorite podcast app and find the episode called Open Source Meets Climate Science.
that's actually a good segue into sort of the non-developer related tools that we use. Uh, we touch a little bit on the project management stuff and the task management stuff, but like that's only part of lives, right? So if I sit down to, to do work, you know, for eight hours, you know, for my employer, like a, a lot of things are happening. It's not like I'm sitting there from nine o'clock to five o'clock without moving, without doing things, without having the world, right? Trying to get my attention for something. Maybe there's a bill that needs to get paid, you know, like I need to pick up my kids from the book school and the, the bus stop. And there's all these things always going on. And like you, like you say, John, it's, it's, you need to be able to sort of offload things, you know, out of your mind, you know, like I'll be in the middle of writing a lot of code and all of a sudden I remember something that I need to do in the house somewhere. I'm like, oh, I forgot about that thing. And I need to quickly be able to sort of uh, make a note of that somewhere and get back to what I'm doing. I mean, that's how that's how our brains work, right? It's just, it doesn't give you a choice as when things pop up, right? The heck, books have been written about how, you know, we try to facilitate our brain to get into flow. But we have no control over that, right? So we have to be able to sort of adjust and and roll with the punches, so, so to speak, that our, that our brain keeps throwing our way to sort of still manage to get things done. So along those lines, I use like a, a task management tool called called Things, right? And it has a nice key, keyboard shortcut. Uh, uh, you know, like I can quickly just you know it brings up a little HUD um, display. I quickly tap something in, and then and I hit enter, and it's out of my brain. I think uh, I hope, right? So you know, things like that, like task management, that's like. That, that's something I rely on quite a bit. And I use my calendar, believe it or not, to, to actually track my time, where what I'm working on when, where does my time go. At the end of the day, I go through a process where I look at my day. I'm like, hey, what did you get done today? Right. So if I don't have things on my calendar, I, I can't account for my time. And nothing, that's my biggest pet peeve, not knowing where my time went. <laughs> so like, I use the calendar to track that and all that stuff. So at the end of the week, I'm like, okay, you had a productive week or you didn't do better. Right. So like things like that, like I find that, you know, they affect, right. Uh, the world around us affects our ability to be productive and get things done as we develop code. But we can't just, you know, these things too require tooling, I think. Now that you mentioned it, I'm constantly surprised at how effective it is to just dump stuff out of your head into, you know, to-do list, the notes file, whatever. Every time it's the same. Like you go, I don't know how to manage all of this. I don't, it's so much. I cannot keep track of this. You get really anxious and you get, you know, stressed out. And then I go, okay, I need to write down what I actually need to do. Mm -hmm. And then you end up with, you know, 10 bullet points in a markdown file somewhere. <laughs> as, you know, I do it. And it's so much better. It, and then you look at the list and you go, okay, it's not that much. You know, seven out of these 10 are not high priority. I can do these next week, whatever. Only the three of them, this one is number one. Let's just work on this. And yeah, I'm super surprised, like how effective this, I think, it, isn't it from uh, getting things done or something where you, you know, as in one of the big rules is just dump the stuff before you actually try to do it or try to tackle it, just dump it somewhere and then try to tackle it when you have the time. Yep. Get out of your head. Yep. Yeah. I will say I have learned that dumping them in the wrong spot is a terrible thing to do. <laughs> like for a while, what I would do is I would just email myself. Like if I found an article I wanted to read or anything, I just email it to myself because my phone and everything had an email client. So I'm like, all right, this is an easy way mm. to, you know, get it to myself. Well, then I found later that like, cleaning my inbox or prioritizing things was just a nightmare because I had all these things in there that I'm like, well, I'm not ready to archive this because I haven't read it. But mm -hmm. like, I really don't have time to read it today. And it was just like this massive mess where I was just like, all right, I need to get all of this out of my inbox and, you know, be able to clean it up. And that plus like having a snooze feature in Gmail has been something that have 
really helped me clear my head in that sense. So like if I have something where I'm like, I want to deal with this email in a week, snoozing it for a week is really useful. Or like if you have a flight, you're like, I want this information, but I don't want to think about it until then. That type of feature has been really useful. And then my wife's always yelled at me because I would sit in the kitchen and be like, here are the things I need to do. And she'd be like, why are you telling me? And I'd realize I was like offloading to her. And she's like, this does not help me de-stress. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I need to not do it with her. Yeah. Did you actually find that if you lose things, that it's a problem? Usually, like an email? I'm, I'm, I'm saying this because I have I have a to-do list in, in Todoist, which is the tool I use. I call it my backlog. It is basically all of the <laughs> dreams. It's the list of things that I would do if I was the person that I, you know, try to be basically. <laughs> you know, a couple of months ago, I was honest with myself and said, I'm never going to do this. And I just deleted the list. Mm. And I, you know, turns out I do this a bunch of times. I delete my to read, like all of the books I want to read, all of the, you know, music I want to listen, podcasts I want to listen to, all of this. And I delete it, you know, every half year or something. And turns out I'm not missing anything. Like if it's really important, either I do it right away or it stays somewhere, you know, in my conscious for the next week or so. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just not important. Or if it becomes important, it will pop up again. But I don't know if it's anxiety or whatever it is that you feel stressed out or I feel stressed out as in, oh no, I cannot delete my to-do, you know, my to-read list, whatever. There's like 50 books I've been collecting as I want to read these for three years. <laughs> it turns out, no, I'm not going to read them and it's okay if I just delete this list. I think generally speaking, you're right. Getting rid of the list is completely fine. One quick example, like it was not that was, um, I started doing an algorithms course and like I knew I was going to be doing this and it was, but I knew I had to finish a couple other projects. So I'm like, it's like six months out. So mm. when I'd come across something where I'm like, oh, this is like a really good inspiration or like, you know, something that I thought I'd want to read it around that time, then I needed to have a list for that specific thing. But usually I was like, I know exactly where this gets categorized. So it just came down to like, I need to get it to something that's sort of like for when that time comes. So it wouldn't be like a backlog to, you know, task list. It would be like the, this course reading list, you know, so like I'd actually know how to classify it. I agree with you. If it's just like a generic backlog, chances are you don't need it. And where I ran into issues is I was just emailing myself all of these links and some of them needed to be backlog, you know, needed to be put somewhere. And some of them were just things I was just never going to get to reading. So mm -hmm. it was kind of hard because I just had too much going on at once. So what I've started doing more recently is I just have a notion board that it's like a list of just reading links. And when I see things, I'll throw them in there. And then like every so often I'll go through and throw them into the correct areas where they might you know, relate to. And anything else, I'm like, if it if I haven't read it at this point and I don't want to read it right now and it doesn't go anywhere that like I need it in the future, it gets deleted. Yeah. But, you know, I have to be like more diligent about it in that sense, because it's like you said, you can get a big list of things that you don't really need, but you convince yourself you need. Yeah. I mean, I guess the difference is that one is archiving stuff for later retrieval because you know you're going to use it so i do all my note taking in markdown files that are in a dropbox folder let's talk the next two hours about my note taking system <laughs> uh, but that that is the short version and stuff i put in there a lot of the stuff i know i'm not going to look at on a regular basis but i know it's there i can search it i can grab for it whatever uh, for retrieval purposes right but I think there's a lot of tools that can solve this problem. 
except that they're marketed as to-do lists or task managers or, you know, check-off lists or whatever. It's all, I don't know, if you search for in any app store for list, you will find to-do lists, mm -hmm. like things mm -hmm. you have to check off, things you have to do. It's not maybe someday want to read books. It's always to read, you know. Maybe this is where like this bad feeling comes from, as in, you know, I, I curated this list of interesting things But it says to read, so now I feel bad about throwing it away, even though they're not interesting to me anymore. I don't know. Maybe we need a different class of tools for this. I will say that you brought up Markdown, and I think that's something that every developer should learn, only because it's such a useful tool for note-taking and for, like, almost, like, I use it for so many things, it's, it's kind of insane to me. You know, between note-taking or just writing up readmes for a project or anything along those lines... To the point where I don't even like using like a preview for Markdown. I just prefer mm. looking at Markdown with syntax highlighting because that's just what I'm used to. So every time yes, I see yeah. these tools that are like, let me give you a live, I'm like, I don't, I've written so much Markdown at this point that that does not help me. Yeah. But I, I definitely think any developer, like that's something they should get familiar with because I don't see Markdown going away anytime soon. And I suspect their life will be much more, it'll be at least more proficient when they're writing docs if they know how Markdown works. Yeah. The problem is once you have to start using a product that doesn't support Markdown and then, mm. then you get mad, like mm -hmm. Confluence, for example, I don't know. <laughs> I want to pick out, I don't want to pick out a single tool, but I do all my writing in Markdown locally in a file somewhere. And then, you know, for example, Google Docs, there is no easy way to transfer markdown to google docs so you have to do this whole dance of previewing markdown in a tool that lets you copy the preview with you know the styling so you can then paste it in google docs including the formatting and all of that and that is you know really really bad <laughs> yeah it, it's definitely it's like you said when you leave the one tool you're leaving to go somewhere else it's problematic and that's not even one that you would expect to to have that same issue but even even the tools that do support it like um dropbox paper has like a way you can export into markdown and then you can like basically paste markdown in there and it pretty much always works but sometimes the way they export just isn't quite i don't know it's just weird sometimes i feel like it doesn't always mm. match exactly what i'd expect it to be so it's still tricky from but i, I still encourage people to learn markdown because i'm like this is something i use a lot just don't go build your own markdown rendering engine or something i think we have enough of those right unless you want to do it for like learning purposes or something yeah build a build a static site generator instead <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah isn't it time for a new uh, uh go router or something a http router i think we, we're due for another <laughs> <Yeah>. one yeah <laughs> or logging framework <laughs> is that your unpopular opinion johnny that we don't need any more routers Yeah, 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 I'll stick with that one. <laughs> Speaking of unpopular opinions. Unpopular opinions. I actually think you should probably leave. Unpopular opinions. Thorson, do you have one? Oh boy. I thought I had a lot, but I'm not sure right now Now that you're putting me on the spot. I think, you know, this might be unpopular, but I guess in this circle it's not. But I wrote a blog post a couple of weeks ago, and I've been thinking about this ever since. I think that some of the tools that we use when programming might have 
an effect on us and how we program that is not always positive. Meaning, for example, you use uh, a code prettifier, like prettier or go format or whatever. It kind of makes you ignore all of the formatting, which in Go format's case, I think is fine. But if you do really adventurous JavaScript, for example, with React, JSX, whatever, you start to ignore what is easy to write and easy to read code just because the formatter makes sure that it is properly formatted. As in, you can just type stuff into your VS Code that is probably configured and hit save and it just formats all of the stuff and it the linter works, the compiler works, all of this works. And I think, you know, in that case, the tools might be optimized too much for writing, but our tools for reading code and consuming code haven't necessarily kept up with that yet. I don't know. In some ways, I would say that I agree with it but in others, I disagree. Same here. <laughs> That's why it's unpopular. <laughs> Whatever I say, I agree. Like, if you look at anybody who's just getting into programming, they very often don't pay attention to the details when it comes to formatting. So they'll have, like, really weird indentations everywhere, and like, unless they're in a language that enforces it. But, you know, a lot of times if they're not, they'll just have, I've seen all sorts of weird codes just indented weirdly. It doesn't make any sense to my brain. And I'm just like, I don't know what you were doing here. Were you just randomly hitting tabs sometimes or <laughs> what was going on? And I think part of it's just because when you're just getting started, you don't realize how important that stuff is. So sort of learning to manually do it and getting an appreciation for the benefit of it is useful. And if you have a tool, like you said, that just formats for you, they don't really think about why do I need to do this? What's the point of it? Because it just happens. But on the other hand, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could live without those tools, so... I'm not saying we should live without those tools. I'm just saying there might be a feedback loop that is not visible where you kind of, you know, shape your code based on how easy the tools work with this kind of code. For example, I worked in Ruby, as I said, for a long time. And I can honestly admit that I wrote some code that was a feature that was meant to be tested and probably meant to be thrown away, you know, if it doesn't play out. And since Ruby is a dynamic language and it doesn't have all of these tools that, for example, Go has, it is really hard to find all of the instances of an identifier of a method or variable or whatever. So you would write this code, you know, with such a verbose name, just so you can easily grab it later on. <laughs> right? You know what I'm getting at, right? Like I, I wrote code specifically because of the limitations of the tools that I was working with. And I think the other way also has an effect where the tools give us a lot of power when writing code, but we lose the power when we read the code. And mm -hmm. I'm just saying it's, look, I know that's really philosophical and it's probably not relevant to your day-to-day -day <laughs> programming. So feel free to ignore this. I'm just saying this, this might be a thing to consider. Yeah, I, I've, I can definitely say I've seen the opposite where... If I'm using a language where it's common to, like Go does this, if you have a struct and you have some fields in the types, it always puts an equal amount of spaces between them so that like all the types line up. So I think it was Ruby when you're doing maps or whatever the heck they were, the hashes, um, it was common for people to sort of organize them that way with an equal number of spaces. But if you didn't have a formatter that did it, you kind of like avoided doing it. 
because you're like, I don't want to manually go fix this or tweak this or, you know, so I've seen it the opposite way for sure. And I could see people, I don't know, like leaning towards one certain style because like, that's not a good example. Like that probably makes it more readable, but I could see people leaning towards a certain style because they know their editor will, will auto space things. So I could see it being the opposite where while this other style might be easier, maybe the, you know, the formatter doesn't quite like it or formats it weirdly and all of a sudden it's not as useful as a style. Yeah, that's exactly my point. Like people often say like, oh, typing is not the bottleneck, you know, programming, pure thought stuff, you know, this is all just abstract ideas and, you know, I just got to write it out as in writing it out is just a manual last step, right? You could basically dictate it to somebody or something, right? But then you're too lazy to add some spaces to format the thing, right? (laughs) It then comes down to this, like, okay, I added this new line, the code works, but yeah, I should format it, but I'm actually too lazy to add five spaces on five lines or something. So the act of writing code is still really real in a sense, and is still really bound by the tools we have available and also limited, you know, by the tools we have. I can definitely say going the opposite way. One of the ways that I think Go has helped with that is when you see like slices and the last one is required to have a comma afterwards, Mm. like that type of formatting, in my opinion, encourages the correct type of behavior because then you're, you're encouraged to, you know, space things out the way you'd kind of want them to be because you don't have to worry about, Oh, well later I'm going to have to add that comma there or something. Yeah. So it definitely goes both ways. And I think tools, I think at the very least I would agree that formatters can strongly influence whether or not you write code that is readable, depending on how that formatter is set up. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have a good formatter, I think it encourages better styling and more readable code, but a bad formatter I could see doing the opposite. Agree. Well, on that note, I think we've touched on a number of different tools that we some I show you that we use as developers and others for to help us sort of man- manage our thought processes, I think. Um, actually, I I find that at this point, at this stage in, in my career, maybe I'm just getting up there or something, but at this stage in my career, uh, I find that managing sort of what I work on, so knowing what to work on is becoming like increasingly more important than sort of a, the nuances of a particular tool, right? It's, it's always sort of getting the most bang for your buck. And, and that's really comes in sort of managing sort of your time. And, you know, if you put effort into one tool or one task, you know, how much you're going to get back for, for that investment. So that, yeah, it's definitely thinking along, along those lines. I think it, it sort of brings us a different lens, a different sort of a level of clarity to, to the tools that we use in our day to day. Yeah. So this was fun. Thorsten, thank you very much for coming on the call uh, and sharing uh, uh, your opinions, some popular, some not. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. Uh, and thank you for uh, for joining me, John. Um, with that, we thank you for your listening and uh, we'll uh, catch you back in the next go time. Thank you for listening to Go Time. We appreciate your time and attention. Thanks again to our special guest, Thorsten Ball. You can find him at the aptly named ThorstenBall.com. This episode was hosted by Johnny Borsico with help from John Calhoun. It was produced by Jared Santo. That's me. When we need fresh beats, we summon Breakmaster Cylinder. And we're brought to you by awesome sponsors. Thanks to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar for their continued support. If you and your organization would benefit from speaking directly into the ears of all the gophers out there, consider sponsoring the show. Podcast advertising works, especially when you know you're talking to your tribe. 
Plus, you get that warm and fuzzy feeling of supporting something you love. Head to changelog.com slash sponsor to learn more. We would love to work with you. That's all for now. We'll talk to you next week.